Awesome. Well, good morning, guys, and welcome to the second week in a series that we've been calling Gaining by Losing. I mean, I love, I love seeing stories like Seth's because it, it's just such a reminder and such a testimony. Uh, God can use, man, any circumstance, good or bad, in our lives to direct us to him and how God uses the circumstances of life and how God uses his church uh, to play a big part in, in radically altering the trajectory of a person's life. Never get tired of hearing that story. It's awesome. And uh, just so thankful Seth was willing to share that with all of us. What an encouragement. It's really cool. And, you know, you know, even what Seth was talking about, a lot of, a lot of that is really what this series is all about. Um, if you were with us last week, uh, you might remember we started this conversation, and we started kind of talking about how we as the Medina East Campus are getting ready to start Saturday evening services here pretty soon. And so if you missed that announcement last week, we said that on October 8th, coming up really soon, we're going to start two Saturday evening services and we said that that decision to move to Saturday services has really kind of uh, been the reason why we decided to do this series. And of course, this series is, is much more than just an announcement that we're, that we're going to Saturday services. Much more than that, we said it's really an explanation. It's a deeper explanation of why it is that we're going to Saturday services. And even deeper than that, why it is that we exist as a church. Why do we do this? Why do we gather together and, and, and why do we make uh, this a priority in our lives? And we're kind of having that bigger conversation. And so our hope is to kind of have the deeper explanation of why, but we also not just want to give an explanation, but also an invitation. And so if you, if you missed last week's message, again, I'd encourage you to go back and check that out. Uh, but we talked about how as we move to Saturday services, we want to invite everyone who's part of the Medina East Campus family who calls this church home. I know some of you are guests and you're just kind of checking it out. We encourage all of those who call this, this church home to involve themselves in four ways as we move forward, to pray, to serve, to make disciples, and to give. And we talked about that last week, and if you were here, you might remember we even gave commitment cards to those of you who are in the Grace Church family. Hopefully, you guys are praying and processing through that as the weeks are going. If you've misplaced that, uh, if you're like me, I misplaced things, we actually have some uh, that are out in the chairs. If you want to grab one of those things and take that and process it as a family's commitment cards, we kind of encourage everyone to do that. There's also, by the way, an electronic version of that if you want that on our app. If you go to the Grace Church app, you can get um, that as well. But last week, I, I just kind of want to summarize what we talked about. We were talking about, man, why is it that we exist as a church? Why is it that we're moving to Saturday services? And one of the big things that we mentioned last week is we said one of the big reasons we exist as a church is because of what we believe about blessing. And so last week, we looked at a theology of blessing. We looked at the biblical definition of what blessing is all about. And here's what we discovered. We discovered that blessing in the Bible is two things, and it's nothing less than these two things. And we said on one hand, blessing in the Bible is a divine gift. It is something that is from God, and it is for us. It's a divine bestowal, something that God gives to us. And we said that on one hand, that is one aspect of what blessing is. But we said there's another aspect of blessing according to the Bible, and that is that while it is a divine gift, it is also equally a divine responsibility. And we looked at uh, the book of Genesis chapter 12, and we saw that when God blessed Abraham, he told him, I'm going to bless you, not just so that you'll be blessed, I'm going to bless you so that you in turn will then be a blessing. You're blessed so that you can become a fountain of blessing into the lives of other people. We said last week that's exactly what the nature of blessing is, is that we're blessed not just to be blessed, but we're blessed in turn to be a fountain of blessing, to bless the community that we're in. And so we, we kind of talked about this idea. We said that anytime we find ourselves in a position of blessing, we need to always be asking two questions. And those two questions are, how have I been blessed? And the second question is, why have I been blessed? And, and how is it that God has put me in this scenario that I'm in? And how can I leverage that to become a blessing to other people? Because this is the paradoxical nature of God's kingdom. 
God's kingdom is one in which when we try to hoard blessing for ourselves, when we try to hoard it and keep it to ourselves, we end up losing it. But whenever we deliberately, for God's sake and for the sake of others, lose it, we gain it. And this is gaining by losing math, this paradoxical approach that the Bible teaches us. Well, today, as, as we continue in this conversation about the church and about Saturdays, about why, are we, why do we do this, I want to look at a different dimension uh, of this conversation today, uh, almost a different reason uh, that's, that's slightly different than what we talked about last week. And, and to do that, I want to encourage you to grab your Bibles with me, and we're going to look at a really strange, obscure little parable that's found in Luke chapter 11. So if you've got your Bibles, why don't you grab those with me, and we're going to turn to Luke chapter 11 in your Bibles. If you did not bring a Bible with you this morning or you don't have a Bible app on your phone, um, that's not a problem. We actually have some Bibles for you. And so you can just grab a copy of ours there in the, in the chairs underneath or in front of you. Page 726 in those black Bibles is where we're going to find Luke 11. So go ahead and get there. And, uh, and let me also say, uh, we say this every week, if you're a guest with us this morning and you don't own a Bible, like if you don't have one, we want you to take one of ours. You can make that a gift from us to you. We think it's really important that you get a Bible. Put your name in it, read it. We would love for you to, to have that. Okay, so Luke chapter 11 is where we're going. And we're, again, we're going to look at a really strange, short, obscure parable that Jesus gives. And, uh, and so let me give you the context before we jump into this little parable. So in Luke chapter 11, what we find, Jesus has been doing his ministry now for a long time. So he has been healing people. He has been preaching sermons. He's been attracting a lot of attention. Uh, some of that attention was positive. Some of that attention was negative. Some people were very against what Jesus was doing. And so by the time we get to Luke chapter 11, the Bible tells us of an account where Jesus is healing a demon-possessed man. Now, I know for some of us that might sound kind of science fiction-y, but that's what the Bible says. He's healing a demon-possessed man. And as he's doing this, the Bible says that the crowd that was watching him began to become suspicious about where he got the power to do this. And so some of them started to think to themselves, and they started to conjecture, and they said, we believe that the reason that Jesus is able to do this is because he has some satanic power. Right? He has some power from Satan that, that he is able to do these crazy spiritual things. And Jesus, of course, knowing their thoughts, and if you've read the passage, you might remember, Jesus said to them, that's ridiculous. That's ridiculous. He said, why would Satan drive out Satan? A, a, a house divided against itself cannot stand. And so Jesus said, the, the, the power in which I do these things doesn't come from Beelzebub, from Satan, is what he says. It comes from God. It comes from God. And then Jesus goes on to give this parable. Again, very strange little parable. We're going to spend most of our time on this three-verse parable because I think there's so much in this for us. So let's take a look at it together. We're going to start in verse 21 of Luke chapter 11. So let's just read it together. Here's what it says. Jesus said, When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own house, his possessions are safe. But when someone stronger attacks and overpowers him, he takes away the armor in which the man trusted, and he divides his plunder. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Right? And that's the end. That's the end of the, the little three-verse parable before Jesus moves on to another parable. Kind of crazy. All right, so the question is, uh, what does it mean? What does the parable mean? And what does that have to do with our church? What does it have to do with what we're talking about, our conversation today? And I want to elaborate on that, but before we elaborate on that, I think it might be good for us just to get our minds wrapped around this parable real quick, right? So let's just do that. Let's get our minds wrapped around this parable. I think a good way to do that um, maybe would be to, to reenact it. Um, I'm a very visual person. I kind of learn visually. I know some of you are that way. So I thought maybe it might be helpful for us to just get our minds around this parable by reenacting. You guys okay with that? All right, well, I'm going to do it anyway. So here we go. So verse 21, let's just start there. Here's what he says. 
Jesus says, once upon a time, when a strong man, fully armed, guards his own house, his possessions are safe. Let's just pause there. Let's reenact this. So I asked uh, this morning if I could have DJ Douglas come up on stage. So DJ, you want to come up here for a minute? If you guys don't know DJ Douglas, this is DJ. DJ is our student ministries coordinator here at the Medina East Campus. Awesome guy. And so if you are a middle school student and very humble as well, if you're a middle school student or a high school student or a parent of of a student and you don't know DJ, you need to get to know DJ. He's an awesome, awesome, awesome guy. Okay, so so DJ for us this morning is going to represent the strong man in our reenactment. And for obvious reasons, right? DJ is a very strong guy. Um, I know just looking at you, I I wouldn't want to pick on you. You know, I also know DJ's a soldier, so he probably knows 99 ways to kill me with a paper clip if he wanted to. So I wouldn't want to mess with him. Okay, so um, by the way, this has nothing to do with the message. I'm just curious. How many of you guys out there, just by looking at DJ, think you could take him down? Just out of curiosity. Like in the front row. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's the best right there. You're probably right. Yeah, yeah very cool. All right, I had nothing to do with the message. I was just curious. So anyway, DJ is going to represent for us the strong man. So here's what the Bible says. Okay, it says that when a strong man who's fully armed, all right, so, so in our little uh, illustration here, I have with me uh, one of my kids' Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle swords. So strong man, fully armed. It says he guards his own house. So apparently the strong man has a dwelling place. So this is going to represent your house, okay, in this chair. So go ahead and sit down there. Thank you. And then you notice it says he guards his house and his possessions are safe. So he's got some stuff, all right? He's got some gear. So there's your stuff. All right, so this is the picture that Jesus paints for us. Uh, maybe not exactly, but something like this, right? Strong man. And the idea is strong man's armed. He's guarding his stuff. And because he's strong and he's armed, if someone tries to take his stuff, he just, he overpowers them. He's strong, right? He's too strong for me. I can't, I can't overpower this guy. So, so you get the picture. All right, but then Jesus goes on, the second part of the parable, verse 22. He says, but when someone stronger attacks and overpowers him, he takes away the armor in which the man trusted, and he divides up his plunder. All right, so for this part, I asked if I could have uh, Bill Korsmeyer come up. If you guys don't know, <laughs> Bill Korsmeyer. <laughs> this here is Bill. He also has a very, very large mug. Look at this thing. <laughs> Holy smokes. So, so Bill is clearly a large man. He is a strong, strong guy. Just, just to quickly kind of give you a picture of this guy's strength. I don't know if you remember this, Bill, but a couple years ago, we had a workday project, and we were working together. I got a chance to work with Bill, and we were, we were uh, given the task to move a bunch of stuff. And so at one point, there was like four guys trying to move this massive desk, and we were all struggling to move it. And I just remember Bill. I don't know if you remember this. He just goes move. <laughs> and he took the desk and manhandled it and threw it on the truck. And I remember I, my jaw just dropped and I was like, my goodness, blessed is the woman who gave you birth. It was, it was cold. I just <laughs> yeah. It's like, you are a man child. It's unreal. So, and plus he drinks 10 of these a day full of diesel fuel. Yes. So it's a stronger man, right? So, so here's the parable. Jesus says there's a strong man, fully armed, got his gear, no one can mess with him, but then a stronger man shows up, right, with a 90-ounce big gulp. <laughs> Look what it says. It says, um, stronger man attacks and he overpowers him and he takes away the armor in which the man trusted and he divides his plunder, right? All right, so Bill, get him. Right? <laughs> <laughs> 
yes. That's it. Awesome. Yeah. Thank you, guys. Okay. So that, now we got it, right? That's Jesus' parable. That's Jesus' story. And I hope that forever, when you read this passage, you will envision that forever, right? And that's the scenario that he gives. Okay, so the question now is this. What is it that Jesus is talking about in this parable, okay? And what does it have to do with our conversation? Well, I think it's pretty clear, and for many of you it's very clear. When you read the context of this passage, and when you read the greater context of Scripture, what Jesus is referring to in this passage is he is referring to Satan, and he is referring to himself, the strong man and the stronger man. Sorry, DJ, that's where the, that's where the, the, the illustration breaks down, right? But, but that's the image that he is giving us. Now, listen, I know that when I say that, when I say, okay, this parable, what we're learning about is Satan and Jesus, there's some of you that are like, oh, okay, is this where we're going now? We're going to be talking about Satan. We're going to be talking about a devil. Is that where we're going with this whole thing? And I understand that whenever we bring up this topic, the topic of Satan, for some of us, it causes us to roll our eyes. And, and, and for some of us, we think to ourselves, man, come on, aren't we, aren't we past that? Aren't we modern, sophisticated people? We don't necessarily buy this whole notion of devils. And it's an antiquated kind of old, you know, kind of wives' tale sort of thing. And for many of us, we take that position. And, and let me just say, by the way, that if you're a person that holds that view, that if you're like, ah, I really struggle with the Satan thing, I don't really believe in that, that whole thing, I think part of that's very understandable, by the way. And the reason is because we live in a culture today that does a very good job of cartoonizing and of making a caricature of this, this, of this character the Bible tells us about Satan. So, for example, when I say Satan, I guess is for many of us, what comes to our mind is probably the caricature image of a guy wearing a red suit, right? We think of the horns, we think of the pitchfork, we think of the goatee, right? That's the picture that our culture, it's a kind of a laughable picture. Or for, for some of us, maybe we think of the old South Park Satan, you know? And so you have kind of this the funny, kind of laughable, oh, it's not real kind of thing, and that we think of that. Or, or we think of maybe some of the most disturbing, disgusting images that you can imagine <laughs> for that. Oh, how did that get there? I think we think about that. But, but what happens is we, we, we caricaturize it, we cartoonize it, and then what ends up happening is we dismiss it. But here, here's the problem with that. Uh, the problem is that the assumption of the reality of Satan, of his power and his authority, is pervasive in the Bible. Right, this, is not, this is not some, um, you know, just, just some uh, obsolete, you know, obscure little teaching that you find in a couple passages of Scripture. It is laced throughout the entire Bible. As early as Genesis chapter 3, the third chapter in the Bible, we see the appearance of Satan all the way into the book of Revelation at the very end until his final demise and everywhere in between. Jesus teaches, Jesus teaches about the reality of Satan. Paul teaches about the reality of Satan. John teaches about the reality of Satan. James teaches about the reality of Satan. It is all throughout the New Testament. It is all throughout the Old Testament. And so if you're a person that says, listen, I'm not sure I can really accept all of, all of this whole stuff about Satan, you have to be prepared to turn a blind eye to what much of Scripture teaches. In fact, it's been said that even thir- uh, according to Barna Research back in 2009, 30% of American Christians don't believe that there is a Satan. And I can't help but think of that quote, if you guys ever saw the movie, The Usual Suspects. Uh, Kevin Spacey's character in that movie says, the greatest trick the devil ever pulled is convincing the world he didn't exist. But man, a good point, Kevin Spacey, good point, right? In fact, even when you look at what Jesus teaches in this parable, what he teaches is unbelievably consistent with what, res- what the rest of the Bible teaches concerning Satan. 
What am I talking about? Well, let me just show you what I mean. Let's look back at this passage again. Notice how Jesus begins his parable in verse 21. He says, when a strong man fully armed guards his own house. Notice how Jesus refers to Satan here. He says he's a strong man who's fully armed. Now, again, that is very consistent with what the Bible teaches in regards to Satan. The Bible teaches us that Satan is a created angel who is among the highest order of angels, unbelievably powerful and unbelievably beautiful. And he, he, he is so more powerful than any human. He is the strong man, is what he says. In fact, Revelation uh, chapter 12 says this about Satan. The apostle John says this. He says, the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan. He is the deceiver of the whole world. So the Bible's real consistent on this. Satan is a strong man. He is a strong personality, stronger than any human power. And the Bible's real clear on that. And we see that Jesus says he's fully armed. Armed with what? The Bible says he's armed with accusations. He's armed with deceitfulness. He's armed with lies. He's armed with hatred. He's armed with demonic for forces. And when, the Bible, when you look in the Bible, what you see is that the idea of Satan is not a metaphor for evil. He's a, he is a personality who is behind sin, who is behind death, who is behind all of evil and rebellion against God. And so Jesus says he's a strong man who's fully armed. But then notice what he says as well in this. He says he guards his own house. Now, what's Jesus referring to there? Again, this is very consistent with what the Bible teaches. What Jesus is referring to is Satan's power over the world, his power and authority over the world. The Bible shows us in Genesis chapter 3 that from the very beginning, God created the earth and that he gave it to humankind. Humankind was to have authority and power over the earth. But very quickly in Genesis chapter 3, the devil shows up and through deceitful scheming, he deceived Adam and Eve, the first humans, into disobeying God. And in so doing, they forfeited the authority that God had given them. And from that point forward, all throughout the Bible, the Bible explains that Satan has rule over this world. Now, let me just show you a few examples of where we see this in Scripture. In 1 John, the Apostle John says this. He says, we know that we're the children of God and that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. John says the whole world is under the control of, of the evil one, of the strong man. Here's what Jesus himself says about Satan in John 16, 11. Notice the title he gives him. He says, the prince of this world now stands condemned. Four times in the gospel of John, Jesus refers to Satan as the prince of this world. The apostle Paul says something similar in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4. Look what he calls Satan. He says, the God, lowercase g, the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ who is in the image of of God. And so Jesus says he's a strong man. He's a strong, more powerful than any one of us. And he has dominion over his household. He is, he is powerful over the earth. He is the God of this age. He is the prince of the air. That's what Jesus calls him. But then notice what he goes on to say next. He says, and he has possessions and his possessions are safe. It's interesting. If you look at that in the original language, the word possessions there can also be translated captives. He has captives and they're held safe. What's he talking about there? Well, listen, if, if this whole world is, is under the power of the enemy, which the Bible tells us is the case, then what are his captives? What are his possessions? Well, his possessions then, of course, would not be material possessions. It would be humanity. It's referring to. It would be us. It'd be us. And the Bible says this is the circumstance that we are born in. C.S. Lewis calls it enemy-occupied territory. We are in the possession of the enemy one. And you see, here's the crazy thing. I think that in our culture, when we tend to talk about this idea of being possessed by Satan, that we are in Satan's possession, 
the pictures that come to our mind tend to be these really crazy, creepy images. And like we think for, for, I know for me, when I think about this idea of being possessed by Satan, what comes to my mind is like the exorcist. You guys remember that movie? And the crazy spider crawl down the stairs thing. You guys remember that scene? Of course you don't, because you guys are all really holy and you've never seen that movie before, right? <laughs> or I think about like the exorcism of Emily Rose where she's like levitating above the bed and we're like, ooh, that's what it means to be possessed by Satan. Listen, I just gotta say, a lot of that stuff is just a bunch of garbage. It's a bunch of Hollywood junk. What does it actually mean to be in the possession of Satan? Well, I think biblically, here's what it means. I think it means that you're under the power of the deception that to find true joy and true satisfaction and true fulfillment in life is found by turning your back on the author of life. That's the deception. That's the possession, right? Because the Bible's, Bible says that Satan is a liar, he is an accuser, and that he hates you. He hates you, and he hates me. And he wants to take everything that God has intended for good for us, everything, and he wants to destroy it. He wants to destroy your family. He wants to destroy your marriage. He wants to destroy your sexuality. He wants to destroy your future. He wants to destroy your relationships and your friendships. He wants to convince you that the things that God says are good are bad. And that true pleasure and true freedom is found in defining it on your own terms and turning your back on the author of life. And when we fall into that deception... It leads to slavery, it leads to addiction, it leads to regret, and ultimately it leads to what the devil wants the most, and that's our destruction. Jesus says he's been a murderer from the very beginning. That's his intention. And he's a strong man, and he's fully armed, and he tries to keep his possessions safe, is what he says. But then Jesus goes on to the great part, to the great part. And he says, but one day, a stronger man shows up. A stronger man. And of course, here he's talking about himself. You know, I, I think it's important on this note to mention real quick, by the way, that um, this whole idea that Jesus and Satan are opposite forces is, is, is a very incorrect, all right? Uh, it's not like dualism. It's not like there's good and there's evil, and there's Satan and there's Jesus, and it's a pretty fair fight, and we don't know who's good. That's not what it's like at all. The Bible is extremely clear that the difference, between, the difference in power between Satan and Jesus is the, the span between a created being and the creator. Satan is powerful, no doubt, but he is a created fallen being. Jesus Christ is ascribed with being the creator of all things. We looked at this in our past series, the Grow series, in Colossians chapter 1. Here's what the Bible says about Jesus. It says, for in him, in Christ, all things were created. Things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and they're created for him. And so Jesus is the stronger man. It's not a fair fight. He is Billy Korsmeyer compared to DJ Douglas, all right? And infinitely more is what we have here. And so it says, when someone stronger attacks, it says he attacks him and he overpowers him and he takes away the armor. Now, what's Jesus doing there? What's he talking about? Here's what he's doing. He's referring to and foreseeing his work on the cross. The Bible tells us that when Jesus Christ went to the cross, that what he did was he destroyed the works of the devil, let me just show you a couple passages. Here's what 1 John says. John says, the reason that the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. Jesus came to bind the strong man, to overpower him as the stronger man. Uh, we see something similar in Colossians chapter 2. Colossians 2, it says, Christ, having disarmed the powers and authorities, made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Do you notice the language here? 
Notice, he disarmed them. If you look back up at verse 22, it says he took away the armor. And it says he triumphed over them. He attacks and he overpowers them. What's Jesus talking about here? How did he destroy the strong man? To the cross. And Jesus went to the cross and he took on our sins and he defeated Satan's sin and death and it disarmed the enemy. It took away the works of the strong man. And then check out this last part. This is my favorite part. It says, and then he divided up his plunder. He took all his gear. He took all his stuff. And you're like, what's he talking about there? Well, here's what Jesus is talking about. You know what the Bible says about when Jesus, what he came to do? He says about himself in Luke chapter four, he says this. He says, God has sent me to proclaim freedom to the prisoners, recover the sight of the blind, and to set the oppressed free. Jesus came to set the captives free. Those who were underneath the oppression of the strong man, who were held in captivity, who were under guard by a stronger force that they could not get out from under, Jesus Christ, the stronger man, came to set the captives free and to take back what rightfully belongs to him. He's the stronger man. So Jesus says, you wanna know what I'm like? He says, you wanna know what I'm like? Here you go, once upon a time, the strong dude, fully armed, in his house, has a bunch of stuff. He says, here's what I'm like. I'm like a stronger guy that came in, beat that dude up, took all his stuff, rightfully took out of captivity what belonged to me. That's what I'm like. You guys, when I was reading this uh, parable these past couple of weeks, I couldn't help but think, just kept popping in my mind that there's, there's a modern day example of this parable, you guys might remember, that happened back in 2013. I don't know if you remember, it's actually just right up in Cleveland, right here in Tremont. Some of you guys might remember the story of Ariel Castro, a disturbing, disturbing story that made national news, horrific story about, about a man who lived up in Cleveland. He had a house, and his house was fully guarded. Remember this? It's fully armed. He had bars and locks on the doors, and for 10 years, 10, horrific, he held three women in captivity for 10 years. And I can only imagine how how horrific of a situation that must have been for those women. But for 10 years, they were held in the captivity of a strong man that they could not overcome. Until 10 years later, back in 2013, a stronger man arrived. And the stronger man in this story came in the form of the Cleveland Police Department. It's really fascinating when you read the articles about what happened when they went in to rescue these women, which I don't encourage you to read it. It's just so horrific, but some of you might remember the police department recounts that when they tore the door down, they came in and they announced their presence and they said, the Cleveland Police Department is here. They recount, the police department recounts that all three of those women came out of their hiding places and they ran to the police officers and they jumped in their arms and they shouted, you saved us, you saved us, you saved us. See, and you guys, you might think that that's an extreme metaphor to use, but I think that's a pretty accurate picture of what our spiritual situation is like. Held in captivity by a strong man. We have no power to get out from under the rule of Satan, sin, and death, but a stronger man shows up. And he comes, and what do we say? And you saved us. You saved us. For those of us who follow Jesus Christ, that is the cry of our heart, man. You saved us. You saved us, you saved us. Here's the thing. For some of you, even as we're talking about it, you're like, man, that's so, that's so true. That's so right. That's so our story. What does that have to do with our church? What does it have to do with, with our decisions to add servant? What does it have to do with any of that kind of stuff? And listen, in short, I would say the answer to that is kind of everything. It kind of has everything to do with our church. You're like, what do you mean? Well, let me expand on that. 
Listen, I want, I want you to think about this for a minute. The Bible says Jesus came, and through the cross, he disarmed the enemy. He, he came to destroy the works of the devil. The devil, according to Jesus, Satan's sin and death, has been defeated. Destruction is certain. The Bible says in the book of Revelations that that, that, that destruction, that Satan's final defeat is ensured. That's going to happen. So the question is, what, what's happening now in this in-between period of time? And here's what the Bible says. The Bible says that what Jesus is doing now is that he is plundering the strong man. He is taking back that which rightfully belongs to himself. Now, here's the question I want you to think about for a minute. How is Jesus plundering the strong man? In what way, through what means, is Jesus accomplishing that mission to plunder the strong man, to set the captives free, to take back that what rightfully belongs to him? How is he doing that? And I'll tell you how, because the Bible tells us. You guys want to know? Here it is. You ready? The way that Jesus is plundering the strong man is through the church. It's us. That's how he's doing this. Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, one of my favorite passages in all of scripture about the church. This is actually the first time the church is ever mentioned by Jesus. It's the launch of the church. And you notice it's, it's launched with a promise, but I want you to notice what Jesus says in Matthew 16, 18. He says, I will build my church as a promise. Notice Jesus doesn't look at his disciples and say, you will build my church. It's not what he says. Now, they're going to play a part in it, but he says, I'm going to do it. It's my promise 2,000 years ago. I will build my church, he says, and the gates of hell are not going to prevail against it. All right, now, here's what I love. I've loved this about this passage for so long. Let me just ask you a question real quick. In this passage, who is it who's picking on who exactly? All right, let me ask it another way. In this passage, who is on the offensive and who is on the defensive? Because the last time I checked, city gates are not an offensive weapon. They are a defensive tactic to try to keep someone from beating you down. And so Jesus says, I'm going to build my church. I have a battering ram in which we're going to destroy the gates of hell. We're going to knock on their door and beat their door down. And the name of my battering ram is the church. I've defeated the enemy, and now the church is going to rush in. We rush in, and we plunder. We take back that which belongs to God because the enemy has been disarmed and we take it all back. You guys, we have to understand that the church, the church is not just some man-made anthropological social institution. That's not what this is. It is a divinely commissioned organism that has been entrusted with the mission and with the message of Jesus Christ. And we are called to plunder, take back that which belongs to God. Now, last week I said this. I said, we are blessed to bless we're blessed to be a blessing. We are blessed to bless. This week, I want you to hear this. The Bible tells us that we are rescued to rescue. For those of us who follow Jesus Christ, and I know not everyone does. Some of you are still investigating that. But for those of us who follow Jesus, the Bible tells us we are rescued by Jesus, but not simply to remain rescued, but to now join Jesus in the greatest rescue mission this universe has ever seen. We are rescued to rescue. Now, look, I know that might sound like kind of a vague thing, and so let me try to put some skin on that. What do I mean by that? Well, here's what I mean. Here's what I mean. Because I want you to think about this. Whenever, for those of us who follow Jesus, whenever, whenever we, we, we show acts of love and kindness in the name of Jesus to our friends and our coworkers and our neighbors, what exactly is it that we're doing? Think about this. Whenever it is that you take that message, the message of the gospel, the beautiful message that Jesus Christ, the stronger man, has defeated the strong man, 
and that he has, and he has bought us salvation. And we ever share that message, whenever we share that message with our neighbors and our friends and our coworkers, what are we doing? Are we just, are we just proselytizing our faith? Is that what we're doing? Are we just simply sharing our religious worldview and our matter of opinion? Is that what we're doing? No, 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 no. According to scripture, the Bible says, no, we are becoming the hands and the feet of Jesus. We are working along with him and we are announcing the good news of the stronger man. We are plundering is what we're doing. You guys, whenever we invest in another person spiritually, we make disciples like the Bible says and we teach others to obey all that Christ had commanded. And so whenever we, whenever we start talking about God's picture for marriage and God's, and God's picture for our money and God's picture for our sexuality and God's picture for every area of our life and our parenting, what are we doing? Are we just giving helpful tips and good advice to people? Is that all we're doing? No. According to the Bible, we are doing the work of plundering and we are connecting the hearts of people back to the God that they were designed to worship. That's what we're doing. It's much bigger than that. The church is, is, the, is the method in which Jesus Christ accomplishes mission. You guys, whatever we do, whenever you serve in Power Kids, whenever you serve with the middle school students or the high school students or you serve with New Perspective and you invest in the, in the next generation for a spiritual cause, whenever we do Bible camp and literally hundreds of children come in here and hear about the message of Jesus and we teach them the foundations of the Bible, what is happening? What are we doing? Well, you got to give the kids something to do. They'll get in trouble if you don't give them something to do. So you might as well put them into church, give them some good morals. I don't know why I'm talking like that. That's how I talk. To them. Right. Is that what we're doing? Is, that, is this just like child care? Is that what we're doing? And no way. We're plundering. We're taking back that which belongs to God. We're, we, we're the, the, the strong man has been bound. And so we're rushing in. Church is rushing in. You guys, whenever we collectively come together and we use our spiritual gifts and abilities that God has given us, every one of us has a, a unique gift that God has given us. And we use that in a way to try to present something to our community that connects them with the heart of God. Things like services that we do here. Things like service projects that we do in our community. What are we doing? Oh, I volunteer at my church. I like to volunteer. I think it's a good thing to do. So I, I believe very strongly that we need to stricken the word volunteer from our church vocabulary altogether. Um, and listen, I, I'm not saying it's a bad thing to volunteer. Volunteering is awesome. Volunteer at the Red Cross. Volunteer at your library. Volunteer at Habitat for Humanity. That's a, in fact, we would encourage that. That helps our community, and it's an awesome way to show the love of Jesus. But as it relates to the church, this is not a volunteer organization. It is not. You guys, it's the body of Christ. That's what it is. And listen, I know, I know, especially for those of us who grew up in the church, and myself included, that sometimes when I use that terminology, the body of Christ, that it's been so overused that we've kind of forgot what it meant. But I just want you to think about this for a minute. Just think about this with me for a minute, all right? Think about this term. We are the body of Christ. All right, so, so just, for, just for an illustration, this is kind of a silly illustration, but I have a body, right, obviously. I am one person. I am Tony. I have a mind, I have a spirit, and I have a body. Now, let me, let me just ask you real quick. If I, Tony, had a will, I had a mission, I had a desire, and let's just say for illustration, again, silly illustration, but let's just say for, for illustration's sake that my will, my mission, is that I want to get a drink of water. There's a drink of water in that cup. That's my mission, that's my will, that's my goal. Now, let me ask you a question. How do I accomplish that mission? How do I do that? Do I use the force? Right? Am I like a Jedi man? I can't do that, right? How do I do it? 
I use my body. That's how I, that's how I accomplish my mission. My, my body parts, all of them unique, are connected to my mind, which is connected to my will, and it's all filled with my spirit. And so when my spirit and my will say, go, my body reacts to it, and I come over and I get a drink of water, and my body accomplishes my mission. You guys, the Bible says that we are the body of Christ. He is the head of his body. We're attached to his mind, his will. We're endowed with his spirit to accomplish his purposes in this earth. How does God plunder the strong man? He uses his body. He uses his church. And that is not a volunteer organization. You guys, my body, no parts of my body volunteer. My bladder did not volunteer this morning to show up. It wasn't like, well, if I make it, I can make it, but that's all right. If that was the case, I would be in some pretty embarrassing situations, right? My kidney doesn't volunteer to do its function. It's not like my foot writes a thank you card to my kidney every time it does its job. And that, that's not to say, by the way, that we shouldn't write thank you cards and we shouldn't be encouraging to each other. I'm just saying this picture of volunteerism is not one that's congruent with what the scripture teaches. We are a body, Christ's body, to accomplish his mission, endowed with his will, with his spirit, under his mind and his direction to accomplish what he desires for us. And this is what God has called us to. And so you guys, when we talk about, we talk about serving here, we talk about getting connected to the church. I think it's important that you understand that we're not talking about a volunteer organization. We're not talking about an anthropological, man-made social institution. That's not what the church is. We're talking about the body of Christ that, is, that has been commissioned to do the work of Jesus Christ. And I believe, I believe that when we collectively come together and use the gifts that God has given us to accomplish this mission that Christ has invited us into, we will see things that we have never seen before, and we will see God work in ways that we have never imagined possible. And so what I want to do is I want to, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, I want to invite you. I want to invite you into the movement, into the greatest rescue plan the universe has ever seen. We get to be part of it because we are rescued to rescue. Let's pray. Well, Jesus, the truth is that uh, you have overcome the strong man. God, you saved us. And for those of us who have put our hope and trust in you, Jesus, we realize that you've rescued us to rescue. That we have not just been, you didn't just save us and leave us. You saved us and you called us. You asked us to be part of the greatest rescue plan this world has ever seen. And God, it's the thrill of a lifetime to watch you work. And so Jesus, I pray specifically for this church, for all of your churches. I pray for all of your churches, God. I pray that you would help us to live up to the calling that you've given us, God. God, for, forgive us, forgive me for having a small view of, of what your church is and what, what she does. God, it's your, it's your strategy. It's your plan. It's the means in which you came to reach this world. And so, Father, I pray that you would help us to live up to the calling that we've received. God, I want to pray that, um, Lord, that you would just help us to, to take the things that we've learned today. Help us to put, take them to heart. I pray we'd be blessed as a result of them. And God, I pray that we'd be able to take the blessing that we received today, that we would in turn be able to bless others as a result of it. God, I am so convinced, I am so convinced that the church is not just for the church. The church is for the world. You put a church here because you love this community. 
because you love the people here and because there's, there, because there's possessions that you have here that need to be taken back and we are here to plunder. So Father, I pray that you would help us. Help us to be in line with your mission. I want to ask these things in the, in the good name of Jesus Christ, our Savior, the stronger man. Amen.